This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What makes a person good? Such a question confronts us immediately with the beating heart of the moral life, its dark mysteries and terrifying joys. I suppose my title suggests already an answer, an answer as ancient and venerable as my opening question. The cardinal virtues make us live life well. They aren't the only things we need to live life well, of course, for the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, must be added to the cardinal virtues if we're to become saints. And not becoming a saint, of course, is the only real tragedy in life. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My treatment of these things this evening will be principally philosophical. But since this is a Thomistic Institute lecture, and since philosophy is herself the handmaiden of theology, just as the cardinal virtues are in the service of the theological virtues, I think it fitting that I begin with some things drawn from the Catholic Church's 1992 Catechism. There are four sections of the Catechism, faith, liturgy, morality, and prayer. Each of these four sections is divided in half. First half considers first principles, so the opening section on faith spends time on the existence of God, the nature of revelation, the act of believing, and so on. And then a second half reflects on a paradigmatic instance, in the case of faith, the Apostles' Creed. The cardinal virtues appear, naturally enough, in the section on morality. The second half is devoted to the Ten Commandments, but the first half, the consideration of first principles, devotes a special section to the virtues. A virtue, says the Catechism, is an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It allows the person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends toward the good with all his sensory and spiritual powers. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete actions. And then the Catechism quotes St. Gregory of Nyssa. The goal of a virtuous life is to become like God. The virtues, in other words, transform us from within. They're the means of a spiritual metamorphosis. So the Catechism continues, four virtues, it says, play a pivotal role and accordingly are called cardinal. All the others are grouped around them. And they are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Then the Catechism quotes the Book of Wisdom, if anyone loves righteousness, wisdom's labors are virtues, for she teaches temperance and prudence, justice and courage. Cardinal is from the Latin cardinalis, meaning principal or chief or essential, as in the cardinal points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. This is a figurative use based on the word cardo, which means simply hinge, as in a door hinge. We might say that the cardinal virtues are the hinges on which our life turns. The word virtue, on the other hand, comes from the Latin word virtus, meaning excellence. Virtus was used by Cicero to translate the older Greek word arete, 
which also meant excellence. And it is to the Greeks that we owe the original development of the tradition of the virtues. Plato, that most astonishing of ancient thinkers, integrated the virtues and especially the cardinal virtues into the fabric of his many discussions of the moral life. The most extended discussion is the heart of his great dialogue, <clears throat> Republic, where the cardinal virtues, are principally justice, are the conversation's principal motivation. But the cardinal virtues are structurally important in many other places as well, including his symposium, Protagoras, the laws, Plato's other, and later, long dialogue on politics. Cicero appropriated, Cicero appropriated Plato's emphasis on the four cardinal virtues as well as his emphasis on a special moral form of human excellence. And his great moral treatise on our duties as human beings, the De Officiis, or on duties, is also organized around. This pagan tradition was appropriated almost immediately by the Christian fathers. And even there's some reason for thinking by divine scripture itself. The passage the Catechism quotes from the Book of Wisdom was written probably in Greek a generation or two before Christ by someone clearly well-versed in the Greek and Roman philosophical traditions. This tradition was then brought to a crescendo in the high Middle Ages by the thinker most dear to the heart of the Thomistic Institute, St. Thomas Aquinas, who organized the second part of his own great moral treatise, the second part of his Summa Theologiae, around the four cardinal virtues and the three theological virtues. And even though the language of the virtues has declined somewhat in our own great age, I think they remain at the heart of our ordinary moral discourse, courage and justice, most especially, temperance and prudence, less so, perhaps. Plato knew well, and the tradition has followed him, that to speak of the virtues as special forms of human excellence requires us first to think about human nature, what kinds of creatures we are. For the virtues are none other than the names we give to well-functioning aspects of ourselves. Let me turn again to Plato, who prepared the ground for so much human reflection. He thought that all of us hold within ourselves, in our soul, he would say, and the Christian tradition follows him in this terminology, though it works just as well to speak of our character or our inner life or our psychology, a discipline, by the way, that takes its name from the Greek word for soul, suke. All of us, thinks Plato, hold within ourselves, generally speaking, three different parts, a thinking or a rational part, a spiritual or emotional part, and an appetitive or desiring part. We can help tell we have these three parts within us, he says, because we can see ways in which they conflict with one another. His examples from the Republic are striking, but allow me, if you will, to update them somewhat for the average university student. For perhaps reasons too obvious and too numerous to mention, sleep is of particular interest to students. Why should we think there are at least three parts to your psyche? Well, if that affectionate noise announces itself in the morning, 
and you wake up and say to yourself that you really should arise, but you don't feel like it, and indeed that voice of reason fades before the heavy desires of something deep and demanding in yourself, then there's clearly a distinction between things we might call reason and desire. But falling back comfortably, if you mutter in anger, what's wrong with me? I really ought to get up. Then we can see also a difference between our desires and our emotions. And finally, when our reason wishing we would rise, but rebuking us for lashing out at ourselves. For as a wise man once said, anger doesn't solve anything. It builds nothing, but it can destroy everything. And therefore, we disapprove of our anger at our desire to rest just a tatty bit. It's a technical philosophical phrase. Just a tatty bit more. Even at the same time, we disapprove of our desire to lay abed and are angry at ourselves for the desire. Plato arranges the cardinal virtues as excellences, perfections of these three parts of ourselves. And so prudence perfects our reasoning, courage, our, our spirited self, and temperance and justice, all three parts insofar as they're related to one another. The tradition of the virtues has modified Plato somewhat over the centuries, though the core idea of different parts of ourselves, perfected by the four virtues, has been preserved. For St. Thomas, our reason is split between our intellect and our will. What for Plato was the spirited part becomes for St. Thomas the irascible power. From ira, the word for anger. Or that part of us that resists what's harmful. And the appetitive part becomes the concupiscible power, or that part of it that desires what is fitting for us. Let me slow down a little bit and work through St. Thomas on the cardinal virtues more carefully. I'd also like to develop a few striking and perhaps not often considered aspects of the moral life that illustrate each virtue. First, prudence, sometimes called practical wisdom. St. Thomas, ever a fan of precision, distinguishes between intellectual virtues and moral virtues. Intellectual virtues perfect our knowledge of things. And there are many different intellectual virtues, such as the virtue of art, which makes it possible to know how to make something. Moral virtues perfect our appetites. And there are three principal appetites, our will, an intellectual appetite, our irascible appetite, and our concupiscible appetite. First cardinal virtue, prudence, is for St. Thomas an intellectual virtue. To be prudent is to know what to do here and now in order to achieve our final end. Each of us as human beings has a fundamental orientation towards happiness. Indeed, our life might be best described as one long striving for deep happiness. The prudent person knows what choices to make in order to achieve that <clears throat> happiness. Here's two striking features of prudence. First, for St. Thomas, no rule book can tell you what to do in the moment before you. The Ten Commandments should always be obeyed, but how to interpret them, whether this particular killing counts as a murder, or whether this particular false statement counts as a lie, all those difficult particular situations that all of us face each day, only prudence makes it possible for us to know what to do. 
So prudence is the intellectual virtue that makes it possible to know right now what it is that I should choose. And no set of rules, laws, guidelines, or advice can replace that inner life of prudence. Here's a second curious feature. Prudence helps us know the means to happiness and consequently the means to every good end. Craftiness, for St. Thomas, is a kind of counterfeit prudence. For craftiness too identifies the means to an end. The crafty person does not care about the means themselves and instead only cares about achieving the end. So the crafty person lives a small life a life focused on just this particular good end, and whatever means can, whatever means can achieve that end are to be chosen. But if you're prudent, you not only see all the particular circumstances before you, as if you were seeing your life up close, but you also see the whole, all of your life stretched out before you. <clears throat> and so you see as choice worthy only those things that will achieve a good end and will in turn fit harmoniously into your life as a whole. I'm reminded here of a wonderful short story uh, from the 1970s by Ursula Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Uh, may I ask, have any of you heard of this story or perhaps read it? Wonderful, yeah. I recommend it to all of you. In that story, forgive me, for spoiling a bit of it. In that story, a town is perfectly happy, its residents the warmest of friends, and its harvests abundant, its scholars wise, its skies clear, its sunsets even better than the one this evening. On the single condition that one child is kept as miserable and half-starved prisoner, deep in the basement of a beautiful public building. Those who stay in the town those who do not walk away are crafty for Aquinas. They will tolerate any means necessary for the good end that they desire. So to be prudent is to know in the very instant of choice what one must do. To be just, though, is to will, to do the thing that prudence shows us. Our will for Aquinas is a special form of desire the kind of desire that is sparked by knowable things, by the things we know by means of our intellect. In St. Thomas's precise language, justice is a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due by a constant and perpetual will. How striking here that we find that the most important excellence of the human power to choose, the living flame of our soul, consists in a certain orientation towards other people. It would be difficult to find a more resounding affirmation of Aristotle's old claim that we are by nature social animals than this development by Aquinas of the chief mark of an excellent will. Our lives oriented as they are to happiness are likewise oriented towards one another, for our happiness is most properly something shared, a common life together ordered and arranged like an enormous and beautiful living organism. We could speak in another way about all this by using the vocabulary of the common good. My happiness, your happiness, the happiness of all of us is a common good. That is something 
shareable and shared between us. Think here of all the things we know, mathematics, astronomy, politics, chemistry, I think I'm at the chemistry podium, gardening, artistic accomplishments, the statistics coming at us hard and fast each maddening month of March. Those are common goods, shared and shareable, knowledge that depends on our common life together. Each of us loses nothing by sharing it with another. Indeed, we deepen our own understanding by knowing as one community the things that can be known. Material goods are not like that. If I eat an apple, you cannot eat it too. And if I share it with you, it's only by lessening what I myself get to swallow. So it makes sense that St. Thomas would say some remarkable things about material goods while discussing justice. For example, he says that the reason of human beings, not nature, introduced private property. For by the law of nature, the natural law, even though each of us is individually permitted to manage and dispense, that's Aquinas' language, manage and dispense external goods, this is principally for reasons of convenience. For material goods are better cared for when a particular person is responsible for them. And things are more orderly when managed in this way, and more peaceful. For, as he says again, quarrels arise rather frequently among those who possess goods in common and not individually. But even though we should all possess as managers our individual material goods, we should not possess, he says, external goods as our own, but as common possessions. Namely, in such a way that we readily share the goods when others are in need. Some of you might, perhaps, have thought of the Catholic social phrase, the universal destination of goods, which has as one of its principal sources this meditation of St. Thomas's. It has remarkable implications. For example, he says, the natural law requires that superfluous things in one's possession be used for the sustenance of the poor. And even more strikingly, if the necessity is so pressing and clear that one has an immediate need of things at hand, for example, when personal danger threatens and there's no other way to avoid it, then one may lawfully alleviate one's necessity with the goods of another, this is Aquinas, whether one takes the goods openly or secretly, nor does this, properly speaking, have the character of theft or robbery. How many of you know Victor Hugo's great 19th century novel, Les Miserables? Or perhaps one of the film versions that have come out over the last couple decades, or the great uh, musical production. In that story, Jean Valjean, poor, starving, takes a loaf of bread from the bakery to feed his family, and is sent as a result to prison, the start of that long and remarkable reflection on poverty and morality in Napoleonic France. For St. Thomas, I can't help but think the taking of that bread would have been justified, and it would not therefore count as an act of theft. For material things are always in the service of our shared common life together, and if individual possession of those material things gets in the way of that common life, then our right to keep them for ourselves can in justice fall away. Prudence and justice, we might say, the pinnacle of the moral life, for they perfect our highest faculties. 
our reason and our will. But fortitude and temperance are necessary too, virtues that shape other appetitive parts of our souls. These virtues protect us from those things that might frustrate our pursuit of real happiness, joy, and peace. Fortitude or courage makes it possible for us to respond rightly to obstacles put in the way of our happiness. I suppose it's usual today, especially in a place of such long-standing peace as so many of us have enjoyed in the United States for so long, that we should speak of bravery in many contexts, most of which have little to do with death. So I can be brave when I get stuck by a needle at the doctor's office. I can be brave when I speak in public. I can be brave when I take my medicine and when I do anything that is right to do, even if difficult. There's something right about all that, since courage is the virtue that makes it so that I persevere in working towards what is most important, even in the face of difficulties. But for St. Thomas, courage is most of all about perseverance in the face of death. And that seems right to me. It's only really when you have identified something that you would die for, something you would not do, even if threatened with death, or something that you would do, would do even if it meant the loss of your life. Only then do you really know what matters most in your heart. It is part of leaving childhood behind that each of us comes to see which things we would die for. Or perhaps for some of us, we come to see that there is nothing for which we would die, since being alive is what we care about most. And so naturally, courage is about fear, that special form of appetite or desire that consists in wanting that something should not happen. For St. Thomas, fortitude is the virtue that shapes our fears so that they do not prevent us from seeing, loving, choosing what is truly good. Fortitude, for example, is the special virtue of the martyr. Fortitude also shapes the fierce part of ourselves that responds to danger. Sometimes when we must fight, we are afraid, and sometimes, sometimes at the same time, we are aroused to anger, and fortitude is about anger, too. As St. Thomas says, some have thought that the perfect soul would never be angry. But this isn't the right way to think about the moral life. For virtuous persons, says Aquinas, should employ both anger and the other passions of the soul, modified according to reason. Christ in the temple, when he overturned the tables of the money changers, was angry with a righteous anger. And so, too, we should often be angry when we must fight for the good. If fortitude helps us with what scares us, temperance, the last of the cardinal virtues, helps us with what pleases us. Temperance, we might say, makes us excellent pleasure experiencers. As St. Thomas says, temperance, which denotes a kind of moderation, is chiefly concerned with those passions that tend towards sensible goods, namely desire and pleasure, and consequently with the sorrows that arise from the absence of those pleasures. Like fortitude, temperance is an expansive virtue, and so is about all sorts of desires, like the desire to watch Marx's madness, instead of attending an extraordinary, scintillating philosophy lecture, <laughs> or the desire to read the latest Cormac McCarthy novel, a desire, by the way, that all of you should have. 
But just as fortitude is most of all about the fear of death, so temperance is most of all about the pleasures of food, drink, and sex. Those most primordial of human pleasures. The ones, says St. Thomas, that are most natural to our animal selves. The temperate person can persevere in the pursuit of what is best in the face of the seductions of the senses, especially the sense of touch. Fasting and abstinence are related to prudence, for example, since those practices shape the way that desires affect our choices. We want to become people who, when we miss a meal, or our morning coffee, or an expected embrace, nevertheless maintain our composure, our goodness. Eating late or poorly does not throw us into a bad mood. Being hungry and thirsty does not frustrate our ability to be good. Sometimes it might seem the courageous person is the fearless person, but nothing could be further from the mind of St. Thomas. The courageous person is not fearless. Such a person would be merely reckless. Instead, the courageous person fears what ought to be feared and perseveres regardless, even in the face of fear. Just so the temperate person is not insensible to the delights of the senses. As if being truly virtuous means not caring about the delights of the earth. The temperate person really sees the goodness of creation, really feels sensible pleasures, and yet does not let the desire for those things distract from what must be done here and now. If I could hazard a more general thought here, only the one who really knows and loves food, drink, and sex can be temperate. Just as only the one who really knows and fears death can be brave. The achievement of virtue depends on genuine insight into all the goodness of the created world. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, these four virtues, the cardinal virtues, the principal excellences of the human moral life, are each mysterious in its depths and wonders. I've only hinted at each in this little summary of some of St. Thomas's reflections on them. But this is enough, I hope, to give you at least a good introduction. In the time I have left, I want to consider two important implications, and after one, an offer at the end, one extended example drawn from the last published story of J.R.R. Tolkien. First, the implications. To begin with, the cardinal virtues are not like things I can acquire and add to my possessions of good things. We use nouns to refer to the virtues as if they were themselves particular things, but this is misleading. The virtues describe ways of being and are in some ways better referred to grammatically by means of adjectives or adverbs. Properly speaking, I do not have prudence. I am prudent, that's the adjective, or I act prudently, that's the adverb. To acquire the cardinal virtues, although I've turned it into a noun again, to acquire them is actually to become a certain kind of person. I'd prefer to say, I think, that we become the cardinal virtues. Cardinal virtues just are, deep down, a way of describing a morally healthy and mature human person. To fail to become cardinally virtuous is to be stunted, deformed, morally malnourished, and so unable 
to grow properly. How does one grow in this way? The tradition of the virtues has a striking answer to this question. We grow in virtue by acting virtuously. Like learning other skills, such as playing music or sports, we learn morality by practicing being moral. And since we do not start off knowing what that looks like or how to do it, we grow in virtue by imitating other virtuous people. And the act of imitation introduces us to the moral life and eventually makes it possible for us to be a model in turn for others. Indeed, human beings naturally imitate and young children automatically imitate those around them, thereby taking their first steps on the road to virtue or to vice, depending on the character of their playmates and caretakers. St. Thomas doesn't deny that each of us has within us the special voice of natural law, but he does agree with Aristotle that this voice, the voice of conscience, can only be enlivened in the company of others, for we learn by and through imitation. This idea, I think, helps make sense of Pope Benedict XVI's comment that art and the saints are the greatest apologists for the faith. Each of us needs moral exemplars, people, both real and fictional, who show us what is possible and desirable, who draw us upwards in the moral life. How can I aspire to lifelong married monogamy if I do not have before me examples of joy-filled monogamous couples? When I was asked to speak to all of you today, there was a suggestion that I reflect on the contemporary relevance of the virtues with some possible connections to university education. So let me now offer at least one direct comment on this. University students, like all of us, grow in the moral life by seeking out and imitating those who are further along, who seem to carry about with them an air of joyful peace that is the fruit of a life animated by the cardinal virtues. I'm fond of a threefold division among pedagogical approaches to education. It's not unusual for colleges and universities to embody a tension more or less openly expressed between on the one hand the pursuit and transmission of truth and on the other, the learning, practice, and mastery of critical and rhetorical skills. Some believe the classroom should be a place of research where we seek the truth wherever it is to be found, and hopefully, at least sometimes, where it hasn't yet been found. While others believe the classroom should be a place where we master the arts of communication and learn how to win friends and influence people, especially those who will be interviewing us. I think we should be interested in both these noble aims, of course, but only in the service of something deeper, a prophetic pedagogy, convinced that what someone says cannot be separated from who it is that is saying it, and that the prophet, like the martyr, is meant to be a witness to what is spoken. Persuasive truth should be in the happy service of the transformation of the soul, the awakening of minds and hearts to those things that will help lift life up and yield its greatest treasures. Tampering with souls is much more unsettling than the impersonal pursuit of the truth or the potentially manipulative pursuit of persuasion. There's no guarantee, after all, that transforming someone else's soul might not require the transformation 
of one's own. And failure, like success, is always measured on the largest of scales. In short, true education is always moral education. Always an opportunity to grow together in community in those qualities that make us good, not at this or that skill, but good simply speaking as human beings. Those of you who are our students should be looking for teachers who will help you do that, who care more about seeing well than seeing far. Those are teachers worth imitating, no matter what their particular discipline, for they offer you models of lives well lived, and they can help you know how to find more like them when you are no longer a student, how to become one yourself in turn for your own children or friends or students or fellow citizens. So the first implication is that we do not acquire the cardinal virtues the way we acquire other sorts of things. And this has enormous implications for human life, including those few brief and precious years spent at colleges and universities. The second implication likewise has some striking consequences. St. Thomas, again following the tradition, argues that the cardinal virtues are unified <clears throat> in a deep way. You cannot have one without the other. And so in some sense, to grow in courage is also to grow in justice and temperance and prudence. Likewise, there's no such thing for St. Thomas as being forced to choose between the just action and the brave action, or the prudent thing to do as opposed to the temperate thing to do. The virtues are never in conflict with one another. This is not always a, a popular position to take. It seems too strict, I suppose, as if it meant that were someone to act badly in one way it would mean he had no virtue at all. An argument somewhat like this was developed by the 20th century Catholic philosopher Peter Geech for the Stanton Lectures uh, in the 1970s, published later as a very good uh, a small book titled simply The Virtues. I recommend it warmly to all of you, along with the essays of Joseph Pieper on, uh, on the virtues, published a little bit before in the 50s and 60s, The Cardinal Virtues, and another book on faith, hope, and love. These two authors together are an excellent introduction to today's theme, and they both complement and, in interesting places, conflict with one another, such as here regarding the unity of the virtues. St. Thomas thought, then Joseph Pieper defends his position that each human life is ordered towards a final end. Prudence is the virtue that helps us know how to achieve this end, and the moral virtues, justice, courage, and temperance, all together express an orientation towards this end, a desire for it, so that the four cardinal virtues are unified because they're all ordered towards a single final end, our true happiness. Peter Gage thought this argument was a failure, and even more, that it had rather grim implications. If this argument were valid, he said, it would mean that if a man is manifestly affected with one vice, then any virtue that he may seem to have along with this vice is only spurious, and really he is vicious in this respect too, and not entitled to the admiration that his virtue seems to call for. But it would need an extremely cogent argument to overthrow the apparent teaching, he continues, of human experience all the world over that a man may be very laudable in some respects and very faulty in others. But I side here with St. Thomas and people, and I think there's a way to make sense of Geech's everyday evidence and still keep the unity of the virtues 
I began this evening with a brief reference to faith, hope, and love, the, the three theological virtues, without which we cannot achieve true happiness and peace. The primary purpose of the theological virtues for St. Thomas is to reorient us to a new supernatural end. Faith is the vision of that end, hope the conviction that we might achieve it, and charity, love, the desire of our will for it. The theological virtues reorient us in a deep sense, such that whereas before we aimed only at our own natural good, now we aim at union with God by means of his grace. And in reorienting us, they also transform the cardinal virtues, for now those cardinal virtues have a new end. What are we to make of the cardinal virtues before the possession of the theological virtues? Aren't they still genuine in some sense? Cannot we admire the virtuous pagan, even if that pagan lacks the grace to know and love God? It seems to me that this is the same problem Geach was thinking about. Cannot we admire the apparent courage of the vicious man who lives the life of a glutton? Surely we do not want to say that because everything is not fully in line with our ultimate end, nothing of virtue remains. I think the right way to think about this is to remember that we can praise many character traits that are not full virtues in the sense described by Aquinas. The man who seeks noble but earthly ends, such as the honor of his country, and neither knows nor cares for any god in the heavens, lacks the theological virtues. But he might possess the cardinal virtues in the following sense. He's become the kind of person who could more easily be completed by the theological virtues, were he to accept them when offered. Contrast such a man with the vicious man who lives only for himself, and so is not prepared in any real sense to be completed by the theological virtues seems to me that this sort of thing happens all the time. It's one thing to have some good things, but not enough or not quite in the right way. And it is another thing to lack those good things entirely or even to possess what is contrary to them. Of course we can admire the man who does many good things, even though he is vicious in other ways. But the good things really are good. And even though we cannot say that he possesses genuine prudence, justice, courage, and temperance, we can say that he possesses traits that are good in themselves, that prepare the ground, so to speak, that are worth imitating, just insofar as it would be possible for them to be taken up into a genuinely good life. The cardinal virtues of the man of faith, hope, and love are different, better, more perfect than the cardinal virtues of the good pagan. And the cardinal virtues of the good pagan are different, better, more perfect than, what shall we call them, perhaps the elements of the cardinal virtues of the vicious man. I hope at least to have helped you think more deeply about the tradition of the virtues, to see some of its beauty as well as some of its complexity. Here now is my promised story from Tolkien. I'm going to retell it much too briefly, I'm afraid, the last story he published at the end of his life, long after his fame had spread across the world for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's a tale tinged with melancholy, but also with love, and with the deep things of which the virtues speak. It's entitled Smith of Wooten Major. It's published in 1967, when Tolkien was 75, uh, just six years before his death. The story goes like this. There once was a village close by the woods 
called Houghton Major, known for its town hall, where regular feasts and other gatherings were held, the greatest of which was the week-long winter feast. Every 24 years, this feast concluded with the 24 feast, to which only 24 children were invited, and for which the master cook was required to make a great cake. By the excellence or otherwise of this, his name was chiefly remembered, for a master cook seldom, if ever, lasted long enough in office to make a second great cake. One day, the reigning master cook departed suddenly and returned after a while with Alf, a boyish-looking outsider, whom the cook brought back as his apprentice. Shortly afterwards, the master cook left without warning, never to return, and the village appointed Noakes, a boorish and lazy man who nevertheless had some experience with cookery, as the new master cook. Young Alf being apparently too inexperienced to succeed the old master just yet. By and by, the next 24 feasts drew near, and Nopes, whose only successes depended on the knowledge and skill of the apprentice Alf, found himself at a loss, unprepared and uninspired. But he found in an old dusty box a single small star, black looking as if it was made of silver but was tarnished. <laughs> That's funny, Noakes said as he held it up to the light. No, it isn't, said Alf, speaking in a tone new to Noakes. It's fay, said Alf. It comes from fairy. Noakes laughed again, snickering at the seriousness with which Alf took such childishness, and suggested they bake the star into the cake for one of the children to find. It'll make them laugh, he said. I don't think it will, Master, said Alf, but it's the right thing to do, quite right. But none of the children found the star at the feast. Instead, a little boy, Smith, swallowed it, and from then on, some of its light passed into his eyes and its music into his voice, and he became well known for his beauty, both in his person and in his workmanship, for he had become the most skillful smith for many miles and lived a quiet life with his wife, Nell, and his daughter, Nan, and son, Ned. From time to time, he would wander alone into the land of fairy. Though he remained a learner and a wanderer, not a warrior, but he was as safe as a mortal can be in that perilous country, and because of the star which shone on his forehead, the lesser evils avoided him, and from the greater evils he was protected. Sometimes his journeys were long, and he would see things both beautiful and terrible. Once he stood beside the sea of windless storm, while elven mariners, tall and terrifying, marched past him. Another time he was hunted by the wind for disturbing the quiet of a vast frozen lake. But when he was almost sixty, he found himself before the Queen of Fairy, whom he recognized from a woodland dance years before. They spoke long together, for the most part without words, and he learned many things in her thought, some of which gave him joy and others filled him with grief. This time he knew that the future led back to bereavement as well as peace. As he leaves Fairy, after meeting the queen, he meets Alf. Now himself the master cook and no longer the apprentice, 
who reveals himself to be the king of Pharaoh. And at the night's prompting, Smith gives up his star, for it must now pass to another child at the upcoming 24 feast. And he returns home, full of great weariness and bereavement. And so the star came to Noakes's grandson, as it turned out, who did not much take after his old grandfather. Smith never traveled to Ferry again, but instead helped teach his son Ned what he could, and enjoyed with delight as well as Rue the quiet evening of his life. Like the story Leaf by Niggle, uh, conceived and published in the early 1940s, much earlier while Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings, Smith of Wooten Major is straightforward, even simple on its surface, but dark and mysterious in its depths. Happily enough for us, Tolkien wrote an essay alongside the story that fills out many details of plot and interpretation. No story can be completely controlled by its author, but Tolkien nevertheless offers us some remarkable commentary on what he was trying to achieve. All was not well in the village, he says. The Wooten Major had been originally a main point of contact between fairy and the country of men to which they owed their prosperity. The villagers, besides some of the more perceptive children, had largely forgotten fairy in the hustle and bustle of their comfortable and self-satisfied lives. This arouses the concern of fairy, not because they needed men, but out of love. The goodwill of the king and queen of fairy is seen mainly in their attempt to keep or restore relationship between the two worlds. Since the elves and some men realize that this love of fairy is essential to the full and proper human development. The love of fairy is the love of love, a relationship towards all things, animate and inanimate, which includes love and respect and removes or modifies the spirit of possession and domination. I don't want to mar this story with too much overinterpretation, and I'd like best if this little retelling sent you all back to the original. But let me conclude with just a few brief comments on Tolkien's farewell to fairyland. Here we see the two great marks of the cardinal virtues, the connection between master and apprentice, and the importance of virtue as learned through imitation, <clears throat> with sometimes some confusion regarding who counts as the master and who the apprentice. The virtues are unified in each life for Tolkien, as for St. Thomas, for while a person might have some smaller talents here and there and still not be virtuous, the truly virtuous person, when cast into the fire of tribulation, preserves what is most precious. And so Smith does not lie to the fairy king when given a chance, hoping thereby to keep the star for himself. And each of the four cardinal virtues are present here in their own ways. Temperance, this is a story about cakes, after all. Fortitude in little ways, but also in great ones when Smith must fear for his life in fairyland. Justice, think, for example, of that concluding remark about the fairy king and queen who sought out of love to remove or modify the spirit of possession or domination. And finally, prudence, living wisdom or the wisdom to live well. Smith ends by giving up the star and by choosing wisely and well who should receive it next. If by all this I've sparked a new, a new interest or deepened an old one in the cardinal virtues, and perhaps provoked you to think and read more about them in fiction. And in fact, that would indeed be a wonderful thing. Thank you all for your kind attention. <laughs>